0: Welcome back. Here we are, another DishCast. Another really great guest, I think, this week. I just want to thank you all for your continued support of this little outfit. We're now at almost 21,000 paid subscribers and just shy of 160,000 all subscribers, which is a, a record in both numbers. We are super psyched to have so many people attracted to and helping and supporting the site. And I want to just thank you all who are doing it. Can't thank you enough. You're the reason we're doing this. And if you are enjoying these podcasts and reading the weekly dish and haven't actually pwned it up, this is also an opportunity to do it, please. Coming up of the many podcasts you have in store for you, the amazing poet, Christian theologian, in some ways, Christian Wyman on despair, Christianity, and a a very tough medical diagnosis. We have Nate Silver, my old buddy, on the 2024 race. And we have Jeffrey Rosen, another old friend of mine who's written this really fantastic book about the founders and the Stoics, basically on the pursuit of happiness. Then we have Abigail Schreier coming back to talk about how the cult of therapy harms children. And then we've also managed finally to get George Will, the great Tory American, on Trump conservatism, And the rest. But this week, we're going to go a slightly existential religious journey. And those of you who who always write to me complaining that we talk about (laughs) religion too much, by all means, stop listening. (laughs) But we are going to talk about these things because I do think they are actually deeply connected with our politics and our culture in ways that we, we don't always fully see. But which this current guest has written a book that helps kind of think about that a little bit more. His name is Justin Briley. He's a writer and broadcaster who has long created dialogues between Christians and non-Christians, between theologians and scientists, between scientists who are absolutely committed to materialism and scientists who have moved towards a slightly different view of the universe. And he co-hosts the Re-Enchanting podcast for Seen and Unseen and is a guest presenter for the Maybe God podcast. He also contributes to Premier Christianity magazine, where he used to be editor. And his new book, which I've just read, is the, called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And he has a documentary podcast series of the same name.
1: Justin, you look far too young to <laughs> have done all this stuff. How old are you actually? Well, that, that's very kind of you to say. I, I am in fact 44, so maybe I'm just somewhat oh, no. baby-faced or something.
0: Yes, you, you have the Johan Hari, I just emerged from the womb <laughs> look. And I'm very healthy with it, I have to say. Justin, thank you for coming coming on no, the Dishcast. thank you. It's, it's an
1: absolute pleasure and privilege because I'm, I'm a regular listener myself, Andrew, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm treading on hallowed ground or something. Oh,
0: well, welcome. We're all one big, giant, <laughs> cantankerous community here and wonderful to have you. Tell me, to begin with, because I always ask this question and I'm I, I, sorry to bore readers, but I think it's kind of important. Where were you born? Because obviously we've discovered we've another, another stealth Brit <laughs> here that's come on. We, I read these things and I kind of have awareness <laughs> of whether they're American or English, but no, many of them turn out to be English, uh, especially writing about your religion, mm. which is just something the English tend not no, to do. No, it's
1: very bad form. But where were you born, Justin? I, I was born in Northampton. Northampton General Hospital, to be precise, and, but really grew up most of my life, a young life, in a village just outside Northampton called Patershaw. Yeah, and that was, that was home for me, sort of rural England. And the, the interesting thing is that actually in the very early years of my life, I was actually raised in a sort of Christian commune until about the age of six or seven. So my parents were both converted to Christianity at university and fairly soon after they got married and they joined what became known as in the UK the Jesus army which was a sort of quite full on sort of going back to the first century having everything in common kind of you know hippies who have found jesus kind of community and and so that was interesting i don't have many memories of it because it was obviously my my very early life but they did eventually leave that and went to a more sort of conventional church in the end but that was that was my my very early years and then sort of yeah living in a village with with other kids there what did they what did they study at university how did they meet well my dad was a biochemist he did biochemistry and uh, he went on to have a sort of career in electrical engineering and things N- mum studied Italian and French they both met actually at oxford university and they I don't. I can't recall the exact circumstances of their meeting. I think they knew each other slightly before they went up to Oxford, but they they got together at Oxford. Mm. And but that yeah. itself is kind of a striking, striking thing.
0: You have a biochemist. Mm. You have people who are educated at Oxford. These are these are smart people, and yet they then. Join what is essentially an evangelical or, yeah. or religious, and a lot of people, a lot of my readers and listeners are like, "What the hell's going on there? <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do they describe why they went from being intellectuals to being
1: well, yeah. uh, Jesus I, hippies?" I, I, I think they they didn't see a big dichotomy between being a Jesus hippie and you know being an intelligent person. They they just. I think we're looking for something, as many people are at that age, and they found it in this very, you know, full on zealous Christian community. And frankly, you know, I went to Oxford University. And the fact is, it even though it's, yes, you know, among the, the top tier universities, Oxford and Cambridge also have the strongest Christian unions in the country. So it, it's by no means, you know, a fact that just because it's a, you know, top university, it doesn't attract a lot of christians so so it's interesting because i think people often assume that but actually th- there's actually a lot of churches a lot of christians in in those universities
0: that's that's funny. so so you come along and what did you study at oxford ppe i'm afraid so well oh my goodness. yes so that well, we should explain what that <laughs> means for americans it's a,
1: it's a kind of classic <laughs> degree for people who want to go into politics or yeah, become members of yeah. the british I'm, the I'm pretty sure probably half of the current cabinet studied PPE, but politics, philosophy and economics. And yes, it's the kind of uh, degree people often do if they have aspirations for politics at some point. But a lot of people go off and work in the city on the back of it. And I, I, I my eyes were more on the sort of journalist sort of direction. And, and it was also, you know, a good degree to to study for that as well. Did you just
0: absorb the faith of your parents and become a believing Christian by the time you got to
1: college? Not exactly. I I certainly had to sort of find faith for myself. And that happened in my sort of mid to late teens. Certainly, I obviously grew up going to church. And to that extent, of course, I absorbed the Christianity that surrounded me. But yeah, there was definitely a point at which I made a decision for myself that this was not simply my parents' faith I'd inherited, but this was my own faith. And in a sense, I was in the kind of church where that was really encouraged, you know, that that you made a decision. This was something that was personal and, you know, experiential as well. So, so that really happened probably around the age of 15. And then, I, to, but to some extent, I would say it was really in the university years that my faith really got tested at some level, because you quickly obviously bumped into plenty of skeptics, people who didn't share your faith. So that was the point at which I started to probably mature and question it. And, and if I had a crisis of faith, it was probably in those years, actually, interestingly, at university, when I had to sort of face some difficult questions and look for some answers. So so that was the process by which I kind of made the faith my own in that way. It was a an intellectual
0: process, presumably... Something else preceded that. In your book, you talk about the left brain and the right brain with respect to faith. The left brain being analytic, but the right brain seeing the whole, mm. as it were. How would you define how your faith started? Was it, was it, was it more intellectual curiosity or was it some kind of spiritual moment where you kind of started to believe in a bigger story than yourself?
1: It, it was definitely the latter, actually. It was a very particular spiritual moment, and I can pinpoint it to the the youth camp that i was on when i just felt that i had experienced the presence of god in a completely new way and in that sense as i say it was a very experiential personal thing one that i found difficult to actually translate to my peers when i did arrive at university because you know yeah. it, it just seemed weird or personal or whatever to them so i i definitely my my left brain sort of had to catch up with with the right brain in that sense because really. i immediately started to encounter all the typical questions you will encounter once you've made a commitment on the basis of a sort of inexperience so so i do think you know there's there's obviously room for both hemispheres in in that journey but mine started definitely with that that bigger kind of emotional imaginative something has just blown my mind kind of experience and that that was the start of it
0: this kind of I want to raise this beginning because I can hear a lot of my listeners and my readers saying, well, you see, all these arguments you have, and we'll, <laughs> we'll go through many of the arguments, but you see, I don't have faith and I don't really believe in Christianity and I don't really have any more because I've never had one of those moments. So I, And I will accept that someone's completely loony because they had one of those weird moments. But for me, a grown-up, intelligent, rational person, it hasn't happened. I think yeah. in your book, you, you quote Douglas Murray at one point saying,
1: I need to hear a voice. Mm. And he hadn't heard mm. a voice. Did you hear a voice? I didn't hear a voice, no. So I, I don't know whether my experience would satisfy Douglas Murray or not. But the, I, I suppose my answer, and I fully get that. And t- to be honest, it was kind of a problem for me, as I say, because it, it was like, how can I communicate this to anyone else if they haven't had my experience? You know, I, I guess I just learned that different people find God in different ways. And certainly my experience is not necessarily the norm. My wife is a Christian, but she didn't have this sort of road to Damascus kind of moment. She just says it was a sort of gradual dawning awareness of God for her growing up. But we've arrived at the same destination. And, you know, C.S. Lewis has a famous uh, story about, you know, whether someone travels from Paris to Berlin by train and goes on the daytime train and knows exactly when they cross the border or someone goes on the sleeper and doesn't know at what time they cross the border. The point is you've both arrived at the same destination. And that can happen certainly at an intellectual level for people who are more wired that way. And I, I would say I am wired that way. It's just that the way it began was was kind of actually quite this this experiential thing. But that's, in a sense, as I say, that's why I think I had to quickly get up to speed with the the more intellectual side of Christianity because that that wasn't really major on if I'm honest at the church I grew up in but I quickly discovered all these apologists like C.S. Lewis and others who who helped me to kind of then frame this experience in something that made sense of the the wider world and people's objections and so on
0: can you actually tell us about that moment the person i'm most thinking of when you talk about this a, a blinding moment and then a really engaged effort to understand the consequences and and is pascal who this brilliant mathematician this scientist this person who really was one of the greatest minds of his era to suddenly have a religious epiphany around which he then attempted to explain the world in his in his unpublished actually but brilliant pensee mm. but he has a very clear definition and explanation of what happened to him do you
1: have a clear can you tell us where you were what you felt you know, people are curious about this. I, I, I can only tell you essentially that that I felt on that evening after I had been prayed for. I felt a sort of intense sense of God's love for me, sort of almost through my body, and it manifested in sort of tears, emotion, but just a real sense that, I mean. Uh, almost, almost in a slightly outer body way. In all honesty, I can almost remember sort of almost looking at myself, sort of you know, objectively, sort of from the outside, thinking, "What is going on?" Because I was sort of this isn't this wasn't my normal state, if you like. Ooh. And and I just remember though that what really stayed with me was not so much that experience, but the way I felt afterwards. I just felt Ooh. like something had changed, like the world had gone multicolour or something. That there was just this. This new yeah. dimension to life, and and yeah. at a personal level, I just started to you know want to go to church. I wasn't being dragged along by my parents. I I wanted to read the Bible. I, I had this desire to pray. Now I'm not saying that all of that remained you know as you know in the forefront immediately, but th- there was that sense of just in the following few days, there was just I just do remember this very intense sense that something had really changed. And other people mentioned it and noticed it. You know. So so that was the experience I had. I I wasn't exactly looking for that precise experience but that that's the one that came to me. And I wouldn't say that that experience can feed a spiritual life forever. You know you need more than just an experience at, at one moment to sort of sustain a Christian faith, but it certainly was the thing that that got it going, I would say. But then as I say, lots of other things had to be had to come in as well to to make sense of my experience in the light of all the other things that were going to happen around me. You're also an educated, highly educated
0: person in late 20th century Britain. The entire culture is moving against you that, <laughs> <laughs> that the, the, and as, as the last 25, 30 years, we've seen really a remarkable decline, even in the United States, which is, was one of the holdouts mm. in terms of religious observance in a collapse in Christian belief, or at least explicitly, Christian belief and certainly church going, what's it like to kind of cut directly against the grain of your culture and your society and your generation in a way for whom these things seemed like an artifact of the ancient past that they had no idea about or understanding of? Uh, Did that make you more or less
1: confident in your faith <laughs> i mean initially i you know i was still in my teens when this happened so so to some extent i, well, I that's was the I, pressure yeah, would be the absolutely worst. but i was battling all the normal things teenagers you know have to contend with as well and there are all kinds of things that can make you feel weird or stick out when when you're a teenager and mine happened to be my my zealous christian faith but the i suppose i i i, I genuinely obviously had a christian community i i had other people around me, my age, I think that helped enormously. Who shared that faith and that that kind of helps you to to get through that when you obviously feel like a lot of the things you believe or your values are sort of not shared by your peers in that way. So so that was that was it. You know, I I, I was aware that lots of other people, the large majority of culture, would think I was weird for the beliefs I had and that I should share them with others. But at the same time, I just couldn't be. Convinced out of that belief very easily, so i i I held on to it I mean, as I say, there were moments, and you know I had one particular year I remember at university where I spent a few weeks really questioning it all, you know after encountering one or two people who maybe start to wonder what you know maybe it was just a you know a weird experience, and is there really any evidence for all of this, as I say, those moments come and go sometimes, certainly, I was on this journey where I was starting to to put the pieces together more at an intellectual level but yeah, I, I I can't say I was sort of I felt massively pressurized to sort of surrender my Christian faith or anything like that. I think I think probably that that happened a bit more later on when the new atheist phase really kicked off in the early two thousands. Right. And it felt a bit more like right. you you were regarded a bit more as as some kind of ridiculous fairy tale believing person if you claimed belief in God. That that sort of dynamic wasn't quite at that point in the sort of late 90s when I came to faith.
0: No, there was a kind of, sort of passive secularism, people just stopped believing, mm, stopped going. Yeah. And then in the 21st century, probably, you know, occasioned by the emergence of fundamentalist and violent Islam, yeah. there was this massive, sudden, real hostility to religion in the public square. We're talking about the new atheists, they're friends of mine. My old friend Hitch, God bless him, uh, and oh, he would hate me saying <laughs> that, but anyway uh, I don't care and sam Harris, yeah, my friend yeah. sam and and then Richard Dawkins, the most unpleasant person, <laughs> at least from a distance one could imagine, but nonetheless, the energy was with atheism mm, right mm. so so and and yet that does seem to have petered out to some extent what What do you think killed new atheism at least what what killed its
1: its momentum I, I think a few things I, I think Firstly it started to take on an almost quasi religious aspect to it. It some of the proponents of it began to look quite dogmatic, you know. And, and arguably those those four people you mentioned the so-called four horsemen of the new atheism started to act almost in people's minds at least as the, the sort of high priests of this this new new atheist cult. They were the sacred texts, these best-selling anti-god books they'd all written and they had, you know, these gatherings to worship the aura and majesty of science and and it above all though i think it was the fact they had a materialist creed a sort of orthodoxy that if you went against you would be cast out and certain of their friends were rounded upon you know when the atheist philosopher thomas nagel published a book called mind and cosmos just simply asking well maybe there's some kind of purpose in the universe not not god but you know some kind of purpose he absolutely got rounded upon by so there it felt like there was this quite zealous nature to to some of it and and i think people started to tire a little bit of kind of fundamentalist aspect almost of of new atheism itself. So 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 new atheism couldn't escape religion is what you were yeah, saying. Absolutely. Really.
0: But, but the impulse to
1: have meaning overwhelmed the desire for there to be no meaning. I, I think so. Uh, in the sense, I just think that it, it's very difficult to actually squash religion out of people. And and I think the new atheists thought they could do that. I think there was almost a naive optimism that we could have a sort of future purely ruled by reason and science alone. But the fact is, and, and this is the, the second aspect of what I think killed New Atheism, people kind of need more than just a negative to live by. So just saying God doesn't exist isn't enough for people. And the problem was that once they'd all agreed that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, people then started to try to suggest ways in which life could be lived better under this atheist banner. But the problem was they couldn't then agree on, on what that should look like. And so you had a big split in the New Atheism between those who were advocating for atheism plus which was this sort of atheism plus a commitment to the social justice movements you know gender feminism lgbt rights and so on and those who went in the other direction said this is ridiculous we we don't want any you know political ideologies messing up our common sense oasis of reason and and so you know the folk who went off in the atheism plus direction started having battles with you know the the richard dawkins who kind of went in the opposite direction and that really was what meant the whole movement started to unravel internally because the, the battles they ended up having internally were far worse than any of the stuff they chucked at, at Christians. So so that I think was one of the key factors as well that led to it sort of petering out because it, they, it it just became very internally broken in that way.
0: Does that mean that
1: in some ways humans are
0: wired for meaning? There have been some, you know, interesting theories evolutionarily about this. How how humans that existed in hunter-gatherer tribes with strong religious observations or religious convictions tended to be more cohesive, tended to do better when they fought enemies because they had, and also had a better way of enforcing morality because you had this external Mm. God looking at you even when the tribal leader was not looking at you. So you felt you had to do certain things for the interests of the tribe because God would punish you otherwise, and therefore over hundreds of thousands of years, this need for humans having developed intelligence to have some meaning behind that intelligence seemed to be be, be a very hard thing to eradicate mm. from the human mm.
1: soul the human mind. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of surprised in the sense that a, that a biologist of, of Dawkins standing wouldn't have seen that in, in a way, because the the problem was that I think he obviously saw religion as a sort of evolutionary byproduct but he didn't see it as uh, an advantageous one he saw it as a sort of mind virus a sort of unfortunate you know misfiring of the evolutionary process whereas i think the sensible thing to say is well anything that sort of seems to be this widespread if you don't believe in god but you it's obvious to see that religion exists across every time place and culture then obviously there's there's got to be something just on your own logic that is good for people, is advantageous at least for the survival of the tribe and so on. And I think exactly as you say, you can easily make a case that that belief in God and a higher power obviously confers certain types of advantages, you know, on people. Now, I, I don't think that's a full explanation of religion, obviously, but I think that there's some kind of a, an evolutionary story that probably makes sense at, at that level. And I was always surprised that Richard Dawkins almost was so, you know, disliked religion so much he, he couldn't even bear to to see that there was a sort of an evolutionary advantage almost to religion, which is not the case with all biologists, of course, you know, the Brett Weinsteins and others, you know, they, they absolutely say, well, of course this, this is here because it's obviously been useful at some level in the past.
0: I think when I think of Hitch, for example, peace be upon him, he, he was really an anti-clericalist. He also had some deep Protestant hostility to Catholicism, In in the very English sense, he hated superstition, popery, and hypocrisy, and and then he turned it all into you. Any any religious person is simply obeying a totalitarian state. But when it came to an individual like me, with a friend of his who refused to give up, at one point he declared, "I had lost my faith." He was very excited about it. This is because I couldn't go to church for a while after the sex abuse stuff yeah. started happening. And I just, I just needed some mm, time mm. to come to grips with my feelings about the institution, which, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll mm. tell you, I'm just, while we're talking about this, I, that, that there comes a point at which you're like, this institution is rotten. Why am I still in it? Mm-hmm. Why am I still giving it any sort of legitimacy or credibility in my own, in my own parish? The head of the parish had been abusing people wow. for years, and when he was literally the first one to be de- first cardinal ever to be defrocked, I'm talking about McCarrick mm. here, who was my the, the, the archbishop in Washington. And there was no mention of it, no dis- no mm. discussion of mm. it, no, no not even no culpability really expressed from the pulpit. I was so angry, mm. Justin, but. I, I kept. I came back <laughs> because <laughs> I could make a distinction between. I mean, some people will say, "Well, this is so easy, isn't it?" But it, it isn't. I can make a distinction between the institution and human beings and the faith they're attempting mm. to propagate and sustain. And understand that my the faith itself will tell us these people are going to fail. Yeah. These people are, you know, one of the most salient lessons I was taught as a kid in Catholic school was that the first Pope, St. Peter, denied he even knew Jesus three times at the most important (laughs) night of Jesus' life and death. So why would you expect anything more
1: from the popes and bishops and priests? Yes. Yes. I I, I mean, I I think that's right. And I think Christopher Hitchens, to me, was by far my favorite of the four horsemen. And I'm, I'm as sad as I'm sure you are in a far more significant way at the fact we lost him relatively early. Because he did, as much as he obviously raged very eloquently against religion, you also got the sense that he actually liked religious people if they were just decent people. <laughs> and and he, of all of them, I would say Hitchens actually had genuine friendships across the aisle with people of faith. I know that for instance, Francis Collins, you know, well-known geneticist and head of the Human Jumino project, who's a committed Christian Ended up having a very friendly relationship with Hitchens. Indeed, was was helpful in analysing the cancer that he developed and and extending his life with some genomic analysis and so on. And I I know of several other people whom he de, uh, Christians with whom he developed you know a, a good friendly relationship. I'm one of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm one of.
0: And yeah. there was absolutely no sense of personal hostility. Yeah, and and and, and a great. Crazy- a great sense that we're just knocking yeah. this about. We're yeah. having a,
1: yeah. a great debate about the meaning of life, and, and I think the big difference for me there is is that you, you you got the sense that Hitchens, you know, understood a little bit more about human nature than some of the more kind of the the ones who just were were very anti religion, perhaps at a more personal level for whatever reason. So I I, I can I think he would have probably understood. The sense that you had of the, the slightly odd, maybe, you know, maybe another atheist would think you were mad for going back. But I, I think he would understand that there's more going on there than simply, I don't know, adherence to some institution, you know, loyalty out of blind devotion, that, that there's something within us that is wants to anchor itself in a community, in a story, even when that story sometimes goes really wrong. I think what he hated particularly was zeal mm.
0: and proselytism. You know, this, this notion that I'm better than you, I'm going to convert you and, and I'm going to prove that I'm a better person. This stuff he really felt no. was obnoxious yeah. and I think he's not wrong about mm-hmm. that. I think it can be highly yeah. obnoxious, but I think he also understood the need for a common story, which is something mm. we can come back mm. to. I, a yeah. common collective story. And, and, his collective story, yeah. however, is about the triumph eventually of reason <laughs> over, and not the not the story. Well, of, this this of, is of, but of,
1: this is why I wish we had Hitchens today in 2024, because a lot has happened, you know, since 2012 when he died. And I just wonder what his response would be to, to the fact that as I see it. New atheism just really swept the stage clear for all kinds of other quasi-religious beliefs to take its place. That This hoped-for oasis of clear thinking, reason and science never emerged. Um, It's great for a few people, but most people just don't function like that. And they need a kind of a story that's bigger than themselves to live into. And I I suspect Hitchens probably would now be recanting some of his more extreme perspectives. I absolutely definitely think he would have Completely despised
0: the sort of religious quality of some of the some some parts of the woke movement. This sort of blind faith in one sacrificial victim, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. This massive, the attempt to change our entire conception of who we are and become better people. This was a quasi-religious movement at some level. We didn't have any practical, not much practical, but. Believed in a shift of consciousness in a way that everyone needs to have to see that each of us as white people are constantly oppressing other people, even if we don't understand it. And therefore, this, it, it felt very Christian to me mm. in, its, in its structure and its motivations. We even saw these, these acts of mass contrition, mm. people mm. kneeling, mm. Uh, feeling the need in a political movement to somehow take this to a higher level by mimicking mm. and aping. Yeah. Christianity, yeah. even though unlike the previous civil rights movement, they eschewed actual Christianity.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, and it is that religious instinct and, and inevitably it gets translated into signs, you know, paraphernalia, flags that, that that get waved, rituals, symbolically taking the knee, whatever it is. I think there's, there's that sense that it's always going to in, end up with something like that because that's the way people tick. That's the way they are. And equally, you know, with your heretics, you know, just as the new atheists had their heretics, you know, arguably the progressive woke ideologies and so on have theirs in J.K. Rowling or whoever it is. And so, that there's that natural tendency to get religious, even among people who wouldn't think that what they're doing is is religious. I mean, the other interesting thing is is that, you know, in an odd way, a lot of the progressive woke ideology stuff is kind of is a version of Christianity. It's just a version of Christianity that focuses on one particular thing, whether it be equality or or whatever, but sort of misses out all the other virtues and the things that kind of go into a a whole worldview that make sure that a singular focus on one thing doesn't derail the whole project. And I think that's the problem because we live in a, basically, if you don't also have grace alongside your need for purity, then you you develop all the worst aspects of religion and not, not the best. And then you could also see
0: the cult of Trump. You can see a political party really become fixated on an individual human being who mm. will alone somehow transform their lives and their country into something that it once was. This is, this is not a rational weighing of arguments. It is, it is a surrender in some ways. And, of course, it's correlated with evangelical Christianity, mm. as if people have trans, sort of shifted their previous allegiance to the pastor into some political allegiance, which, of course, would have horrified previous generations mm. of evangelicals who mm. were mm. extraordinarily suspicious of of conflating religion and politics. But now it is... It's what I call Christianism. It's a kind of, it's a kind of politics that has a kind
1: of religious yeah. fundamentalism driving it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I find that in a way more worrying than the sort of secular versions of, of religion, if you like, because this is, in my view, simply an idolatrous form of religion. It's it's swapped the thing that people should be, you know, gathering. This is the
0: best argument I use. I dated someone like before my husband, who was. Who's super atheist, mm, like mm. really super atheist, and we were in the early two thousands, and very doc- dogmatic about it. Brilliant, brilliant dude. And but I remember once thinking I got I got him to think about it different. And I said, Well, look, if you d- if, if if religion is going to happen anyway, why not have the religion that has been tested for two thousand years rather than instant one in these woke people or a crazy thing, as in or let's say new age mm, or crystals mm. or or reincarnation, or or yoga, or all these other insane, not insane, but large numbers of pseudo-religious, semi-religious spiritual movements. I said, Andy, because that was his name, Andy, you, you, I know you can't stand these people, but don't you realize that basically the old school religion is probably better off if you're going to have
1: to have some kind of religion than these crazy people? Yeah, that, I, I, think, I think I'd agree with that. I, I've even heard Richard Dawkins assent grudgingly to something like that as well. He, he had a conversation recently with Peter Boghossian, I think, where I think Peter Boghossian has very much gone on this this sort of view uh, as himself a kind of former new atheist saying, well, it turns out I was wrong. You can't persuade people out of being religious. They'll just turn to another form of religion. And, and he said to Dawkins, maybe given that religiosity is just baked in, we're better off with something like Christian faith than other things and and Dawkins was you know was had enough grace to say yeah well maybe you're right maybe you know we we shouldn't fight so hard against at least the, the more moderate better forms of religion that do seem to benefit the world he, he particularly had in mind the case of Ian Ali, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this recent embrace of Christianity that she announced having been part of that new atheist cadre of speakers and writers back in the early 2000s and and the fact that she seemed to Partly put her conversion down to the fact that she just doesn't see secular atheist materialism as as a strong enough force to fight what she sees as the great threats of things like you know fundamentalist Islam and so on, and and so there's almost a better the devil you know kind of attitude I think among some atheists now, given that we've got religion, well let's have the better forms of religion than than the worst forms of religion.
0: Among some people, there was also, and let's talk about Tom Holland in this respect who being non-religious people looking at history suddenly looked at ancient history, modern history, and noticed something that kind of had been somewhat obscured, which was that the values of the ancient world, if you study Roman or Greek society, the, the, the core of Western civilization in a way, is actually very different world than the one we live in. So the question is, you know, a world that accepted the permanence of slavery, a world that regarded women as incredibly subservient, a world that saw the loss of human life as a completely natural phenomenon that, that would murder large numbers of people and really not think less of it. They would slaughter people in public that would put people up on crosses. I mean, the kind of abuse of cruelty. I mean, this is one of the things I actually said about Game of Thrones that I loved about Game of Thrones because it was, it was an insight into medieval Europe. Mm. If Christianity hadn't <laughs> happened, in other words, there's nothing but power, nothing but cynicism, nothing but murder, nothing but sex, nothing but gratification, and none of these 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 ameliorating factors that Christianity brought into the world. if you I mean one of the things that I've said to my atheist friends in trying to describe the impact of Jesus was simply simply he changed he changed human consciousness forever. Mm-hmm. And That's putting it in sort of non-religious terms, Mm -hmm. non-spiritual terms, but it is saying that the, the Gospels and this character, this person, articulated a view of humankind that was genuinely new, genuinely revolutionary, and has never really been defeated in terms of its logic, and in fact exists now. Much more than we understand oh, yeah. in
1: the structures yeah. and societies that we have now. Unpack yeah. that. Well, unpack well that. Tom Holland oh, has been brilliant at unpacking this himself, you know, as a essentially secular historian who researched the Roman and Greek world and wrote best selling books and now obviously co hosts a, a very popular history podcast. And, and he's told me on, on a number of occasions when I've spoken to him about the way in which he just started to realize in the course of that research, as you say, just how alien the values of the Greco-Roman world were to his own. He, he found it at one level, you know, quite glamorous and interesting, you know, compared to, you know, as he, when he was a child, you know, Caesar was far more interesting than Jesus was. But at the same time, he started to realise that the fact that, yes, slavery was just a de facto part of the economy, that people could be bought and sold as property, that there were basically people could be sexual property. You know, a, a Roman male basically had an absolute right to have sex with anyone who was his inferior there was you know the, the 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 in our kind of eyes now the callous way people would treat newborns you know leaving them out to die if they were simply unwanted the value of women's lives and everything else you've mentioned and we i think and the real point he's making is that we're blind in the west to just how much our values have actually been shaped by the christian revolution because that's the reason we now believe in human rights equality dignity value progress freedom he said none of those things kind of just come out of the ether you know they're not some sort of common sense principles that you eventually get round to developing they're a very unique set of beliefs and and they weren't there in the greco-roman world and they're still not there in many other cultures around the world and, it's hard to imagine
0: uh, a roman legion for example losing a member and then the entire legion devoted to finding that member at all costs, which is what the US military mm. kind of does, in which you no person is ever sacrificed for the good of the whole. You have to find,
1: now that is just simply, it just wouldn't have computed yeah. for yeah. anybody yeah. before Jesus. Or, 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 or the idea of a Roman senator, you know, who was murdered by a slave. And so the Senate agreed that all four hundred slaves should be executed as punishment. I mean, and that just happened. That was just the way life was in that, in that world. And we recoil with horror at the, at this idea. But it's amazing, I think, how blind we are to the way in which, and uh, the the analogy Tom Holland uses is the fact that we're goldfish swimming in a goldfish bowl. We we're unaware of the waters we're swimming in. The fact that they are basically Christian waters and what and, and then you know when he really annoys people it's it's when he tells his fellow humanists you know on Twitter or wherever, "Look your humanism is basically Christianity, sort of with God sort of stripped out of it you You didn't get this from anywhere else sorry and and he's basically just pointing out that we still are running on a kind of a number of theological assumptions in our culture, even though we've kind of somehow convinced ourselves that they actually just come out of science and reason. And, and he just says it's manifestly not true. And, And you know, he, he will describe someone like Richard Dawkins, yes, as an atheist, but a very Christian atheist, because his form of atheism is a direct product of the Christian culture, which allows him to be an atheist. And, you know, I, I've just been editing a an edition of my podcast, you know, which in Bit of it includes Dawkins railing against the Old Testament God, and and yeah, fine, he can rail against the Old Testament God, and there's lots of bits of the Old Testament I'm I, I'm kind of struggle with, but he does it because of the morality the Bible actually gave him. That's the irony of the thing. He, he it's because of his belief in justice and equality and human dignity that is actually what came out of the Bible that he can then go and critique those passages. So I I just think there's all kinds of ways in which we 're we're very unaware of of the the way in which christianity 's shaped all of our moral instincts today I think of something
0: like the me Too movement, which if you told the radical feminists who are doing that that really all they 're doing is attempting to reinstate Christian understandings of the dignity of women and the the the, the, the immorality of treating the opposite sex as simply an object to be fondled, abused, used, or whatever, which implies a kind of inferiority to them. It would, I think, shock them, or maybe not shock them, but, but it, it's a useful point to tell them that, you know, no one thought there was anything wrong with this until Jesus came along. That some of the things that you think are repressive, like the monogamous model of marriage, in which you are you're exclusive to one person for life, is in fact a way to secure and to move away from the way in which women were were abused, treated, and misused mm. for so long by essentially polygamous societies that have been more the
1: norm than the exception. Yeah. Of and of course, any corrective can can go too far the other way, and you get abuses in the other direction as well. But I think you know one of your former guests, Louise Perry, I think, and her book, "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution," did did I think a very good job of of showing that our more you know, promiscuous lives and attitudes in the 21st century West haven't necessarily been good for people. And she comes to surprisingly Christian adjacent conclusions, just in a kind of socio-evolutionary way about the value of monogamy and chastity, it turns out, and how that's actually good for both, both men and women. And so I, I think there's, I mean, my, the book is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And I, I try to trace all these different areas where, we we're seeing people almost start to see the effects of living in an increasingly post-christian culture and as we start to lose the story that did give us our sense of value our foundation our purpose our identity that that we and as we start to become unmoored from some of those fundamental assumptions i think people are starting to realize oh hang on it, it turns out you know we might have thrown the baby out with the bathwater by kind of get rid getting rid of it all so i'm very appreciative of those voices who are sort of like Tom Holland, like Louise Perry, who are kind of reminding people of of the Christian foundations. I I found the most riveting moment in Tom Holland's... Hi there.
0: This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy, Andrewsullivan.sobstack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money, and you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.